it certainly accounts for why the Ukrainian uh, military has in a lot of ways performed so well. They built over the course of the past eight years an NCO core. They've trained on, on the exact kind of skills that they, they're using in, um, on the, in these battles. But I could also tell you that there's another story here. And that's a story that the big army, the, you know, the big army machine didn't learn those lessons broadly. Those lessons that the, the Ukrainians were, were offering, the, the fact that there was a, a lot to understand from the way that Ukrainians were contending with Russian forces in the you know, joint security area, um, that didn't really translate to the big army. I mean, you, you have to be paying attention to, to, to really understand and I think most of the, the army didn't understand, and that's why we had this uh, kind of fatalist, uh, defeatist attitude in the beginning of the war that um, Ukraine was going to be rolled over really quickly. Uh, I I didn't have that because I wasn't on the ground, and uh, you know it's an important uh, thing to be on the ground to to watch these things unfold. Uh, I had, or actually, I hadn't been on the ground in a long time. I served in, in Kiev in, in 2009, 2010, before this war, and served in Moscow for three years. I, I knew there was more to the story. I, I uh, kind of wrote about this as a long war, uh, that there was going to be more than just kind of the, you know looking at the tables and seeing the uh, a, this overwhelming superiority by the by, by the Russians with regards to advanced capabilities, maybe some concepts, operational designs, and st- things of that nature. Uh, but that didn't resonate with me. I knew that there was more to the story. Uh, I thought there'd be subjective factors like morale would, would end up playing. Maybe in some subtle way, I can't. I can't claim to have a forecast how well that uh, the Ukrainians were going to do. Um, the best I, I did was manage to identify ex- that the Russians were were going to be uh, kind of absurd with their maximalist uh, aims, and wrote an article basically laying out how the beginning of this war unfolded and the fact that it was almost certainly likely to be a long war, uh, and that the longer it goes, the more dangerous it's, it's likely to get for NATO. Thank you. Uh, we have Major Giroux. He's an urban warfare specialist in, uh, in, in Canada here and good friends with John Spencer. I'm wondering, um, he had some essay or dialed into a lot of the those who trained um, Ukrainian forces. Is there anything you'd like to add to that, sir, Major Giroux? Uh Well, I mean, I'll just be repeating. Uh, well, first, I'd be quite remiss uh, if I didn't say uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for uh, sharing your time with us tonight and uh, thanks for having me on the uh, program. And uh, very happy to be uh, part of this this panel here. But uh, I, I would say that uh, I, I I'll repeat what I said the other night. I didn't serve in Ukraine, although I had many friends who served on Operation Unifier, which was our uh, advisory operation to uh, Ukraine. And uh, uh, and like I said the other night, uh, these ladies and gentlemen are uh, so motivated and so dedicated uh, with with. Uh, a great sense of humor as well that, uh, you know, as Colonel Lake said, the, uh, the, uh, before it's, uh, I mean, we can learn just as much from them as, as they can from us. And so that's all I have to add. So it really is it a surprise that the Russians are doing so poorly and the Ukrainians are doing so well. No, not really. I mean, they're, they're fighting for their lives and they're fighting for their freedom. So of course they are extremely motivated, but that's all I would really ask. Uh, that's what I would say. Well, Joe, like one thing that I'd like to ask, uh, add, uh, add to this uh, discussion, uh, you know, today I, 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 you know, was tweeting and made uh, made a tweet, uh, kind of hidden uh, the New York Times for their kind of s- a silly uh, title, saying that the U.S. Uh, kind of uh, was responsible or enabled the strikes on the generals. 
the uh, being able to knock out so many of uh, Russia's generals in this war. Part of this part of this story, and we shouldn't forget it, is that the U.S. and the West played a important enabling role. We we provided support to get uh, this army to where it was with some training, and uh, we played a supporting role with regards to equipping this force. But uh, we shouldn't overstate our our component in this. It is entirely the Ukrainians, the uh, the Ukrainian soldiers, the Ukrainian intelligence officers, the Ukrainian people that are responsible for this victory. There is a great deal of hubris in claiming that it was uh, U.S. intelligence that was instrumental in knocking out these generals or U.S. intelligence was was instrumental in knocking out uh, the Moskva. And it really bothers me because it, it, it offends my notion of kind of justice that these these people that have been fighting so hard uh, and, and sacrificing so much that our, our kind of hubris and our sense of self, uh, you know, we, we feel an urge to take some credit for uh, what we're doing when we really are. We, we played a supporting role. We played a supporting role with regard to providing uh, some equipment, uh, some advice. But it's the Ukrainians that are doing this. And um, I, I really feel it's important to make sure that credit is given where it's due. Thank you for that. Actually, I just want to take the opportunity to uh, welcome our other panelists here. Uh, Mid- I mean, well, it's Colonel now, Colonel John Spencer. He was the chair. He is the chair of the Urban Warfare Studies, and he works at the Madison Policy Forum. Teaches at West Point. Longtime contributor. Uh, we love your presence here. Thank you so much for joining us, John. And um, and then also we have Colonel Melanie Lake. She's a former task force commander off Unifier. She's one of the individuals, uh, Colonel Lin- uh, Vindman, that I was telling you about. Uh, she. Uh, uh, has a lot to say about them and their efficacy. I'd like to all introduce you. Um, and uh, if you want to, if uh, if you wanted to address uh, Colonel Lake, ma'am, if you want to address uh, what I was just speaking to Colonel Vinman about um, about the the two way uh, traffic of uh, knowledge information, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, hi, Alex. Very nice to uh, to meet you. Um, I couldn't agree more with what you just said there. Um, early on, uh, at the onset of, uh, you know, just after 24th of February, every, every time um, I was speaking, either in an interview or, or a think tank, one of the first questions we always got was, you know, what did, how did the NATO training um, contribute to what we're seeing on the ground right now? And I got a lot of feedback very quickly from theater saying that um, that, that narrative was was really going over poorly um, because so much, I mean, the mission, the, all of the NATO missions, I think, were, were a great success, but it really was because it was a partnership. Um, we were learning as much from them as they were learning from us. And Above and beyond that, I mean, there are so many things that we're seeing play out in the battle space right now that they had to learn on their own. There were many aspects of of um, warfare that that we simply didn't have the capacity to teach, um, didn't have the personnel there to do. And they, I mean, they have done a masterful job over the last seven years, eight years of institutionalizing all the lessons that they were learning uh, in the Donbass of getting the right leaders moving up the chain who had already proven themselves in the fight. And, and I completely echo the sentiment that the credit belongs entirely to them. And I think um, there are very few people 
who should be looking to take credit for what we're seeing on the ground right now who are not on the ground right now. Thank you for that. Uh, John, did you want to, uh, I, I, I wanted, there are, there are other questions in specific. I wouldn't mind, uh, Colonel Vinman, uh, uh, to, 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 to just post you right now, because, um, I know you're, you're on a time uh, crunch. Um, what, um, people are very curious about your knowledge of, uh, General, uh, Gerasimov. Uh, apparently you, you've met him. Uh, what's the significance of him being where he is? Is there anything you could speak to about that? Sure. Uh, you know, it's strangely enough, I'll tell you before this war, uh, there, I, I served in Moscow for three years. Uh, I had um, you know, fluent Russian uh, capabilities and found myself basically being the, the guy um, talking, uh, either facilitating conversations or, or talking to a lot of uh, Russian um, military security service officers. So I had a chance to interact with General Grasmov on you know, at least a half a dozen occasions uh, in country, and then afterwards, as uh, on the chairman of the Joint Chief Staff, uh, pre- facilitating those dialogues, translating for conversations with um, Gerasimov when uh, U.S. cruise missiles were striking bases in Syria occupied by Russian soldiers. Those are some interesting conversations, and uh, and those bilateral meetings. There were a couple of bilateral meetings that then um, General Dunford had. With Grasmov, and I, I found him to be um, to come across as a competent, professional um, officer. I mean, he's he's a he's in the Russian military. He's part of the Russian security apparatus, so he, he's he's subject to the same kinds of um, influences and uh, same kinds of considerations uh, with a maybe a more callous, dismissive nature uh, towards soldiers. And, and I mean, it's just the product of the system. But I did find him to be competent and thoughtful. Um, he's uh, he didn't drink. I was a bit of a teetotaler. Didn't tolerate military officers that didn't. And I really expected him to kind of breed uh, an officer corps that was like him. Uh, you know, showed a, a similar kind of competence. All that's to say that um, there is a huge gap between well-practiced Russian military uh, leadership uh, that studies the art of war and comp- and how that translates uh, to the ground. And that gap, I mean, it's a chasm, really, in which um, they're not able to train a force to actually do, uh, to, to perform effectively in battle. Uh, they're not, they don't have the, the, the structure with a lack of NCO corps, they don't have um, the kinds of uh, they don't train their officer corps in the same kind of way with um, uh, with, you know, initiative. And uh, they're not just able they're just simply not able to, to piece all, all the uh, capabilities together and into a tapestry into combined arms warfare. But I thought, um, you know, from a from a kind of a one on one engagement, he seemed to come across as rather competent. And I guess I have some I I might need to reevaluate uh, some of the some of the conclusions I had um, based on this war, but I, I I'm I'm surprised on that basis that they weren't able to to um, learn from mistakes and and uh, perform more effectively in combat. Okay, so would you say that he NATO Ukraine has to watch out for him, or all right, I I kind of hear you saying that because he might not have the type of individuals around him, or he hasn't uh, he hasn't he hasn't uh, uh, trained his replacement, as we say in, in our armies, um, and, and combined with the doctrine that is obviously outdated, uh, is it more of the same? It, will he make an impact? Well, I mean, he's he's the uh, chief of the general staff. 
he's the overall command of all the forces. It's unclear whether he's taken operational command of, of this particular uh, campaign. Um, that doesn't necessarily make a huge amount of sense to me. You'd want the uh, army commanders, the folks that have been working with their staff, uh, conducting that. Uh, so Dvornikov, the southern military district commander, potentially uh, running this fight. Um, it's to, to me, his visit maybe suggests more that he was providing an independent evaluation of the possibilities of success, was pr- probably doing providing some general direction, strategic direction, uh, and, and communicating um, expectations from the Minister of Defense, Shoigu, and, and uh, uh, President Putin. But I, I think, uh, you know, these are dangerous folks. Uh, they are, um, they've spent decades uh, honing the skills for war. There was some uh, fatally flawed assumptions about this, the battle plan in the first place, uh, based on the notion that the Ukrainians would surrender, that the Ukrainians wouldn't put up a fight. And I think a lot of those are driven by the political class, um, by Vladimir Putin, his chauvinism. Uh, but I think they're still dangerous and they shouldn't be underestimated. Uh, but the Ukrainians understand this and they're looking for these kinds of vulnerabilities. They're looking to exploit the uh, tactical ineptitude of the Russian military, the inability to bring to bear air power, artillery and, and uh, maneuver together. Um, and it, but we shouldn't take. We shouldn't think this is this is yet a done deal. It's not done until uh, the the Russians are pushed across their border. Although to me, it's pretty clear that they're not going to be able to win even this more limited campaign um, across a nine hundred mile frontage, a nine hundred kilometer frontage. So uh, combined with you know, as you said, many people poo pooed uh, you know the Ukrainian military and probably overestimated uh, the Russian military. Now that the Russians have underwhelmed the world and the ukrainians have um you know achieved the impossible apparently um there 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 is this belief that with all of nato and the eu supporting uh ukraine that there that there's no going back what does that mean that there's no going back they're invested the the united states secretary of defense lloyd austin uh, made a comment uh you know moving heaven and earth obviously it was quite you know powerful statement from a minister um, a secretary of defense what what does that practically mean uh, does yeah. that mean that the americans won't like it's done it's done they're all the are the are, are there are they all in uh, i wouldn't go that far uh, i think you know the uh, the fl- uh, fl- flowery rhetoric of moving heaven and earth and uh doing everything we can to support uh there's a um, couple of decades of uh policy inertia and strategic uh, missteps around Russia and perceptions of how far uh, Russia uh, is willing to go towards nuclear war, how likely they're used to, uh, they're, um, they are to escalate um, to conventional and, and nuclear exchange that uh, cause our policymaking community and probably the military to take a long pause, um, be very, very deliberate about uh, what we're prepared to provide uh, not offer Ukraine kind of long-range strike capabilities, the things that are actually most, these heavy weapons that are coming in are critically important. They'll replenish the losses that the Ukrainians suffered in, in these you know previous eight weeks of war, uh, more than eight weeks of war. Um, they'll provide uh, Ukraine with probably an advantage in terms of artillery and fires. Uh, but the Russians still have long-range fires. They still have the Iskander missile batteries, they still have uh, air power and uh, uh, 
helicopters in vastly greater numbers, and we're still reluctant to provide those kinds of capabilities. So I think we're moving in the right direction. You know, we we were past these absurd dis uh, discussions about uh, lethal aid, whether it has to be defensive lethal aid, all that kind of uh, nonsensical, you know, uh, diplomatic speak. We're past, uh, you know, the, the conversation about uh, armor and, and artillery, but we're still not prepared to provide, to go all in and get Ukraine what they need to uh, destroy Russia's ability to sustain war. Because even if Russia is a, uh, um, it, it, Russia's ground forces are destroyed, they're broken against uh, the Ukrainian uh, ground forces, against the Ukrainian armed forces, Russia still has those fires and it can still dis uh, attempt to destroy in, uh, Ukrainian cities and, and punish the Ukrainian population. Until we, when we're going to get there, the problem is it's going to take a long time and there's going to be more casualties. But uh, we, we haven't shifted our mentality yet on... Um, who we want to win, how, uh, that Russia needs to suffer a strategic defeat, uh, that Ukraine needs to win, simply. So I'm not going to ask you what the trigger would be for that, because you know, I'm, I'm sure you'll say you, you, you don't know exactly. But for those watching on the sidelines, what would be the, what would, what would be the evidence that the trigger has been made? What would, what would the West, the United States, actually give to Ukraine to, to, to have that capability, uh, the real long range? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, this is, this war is very, very unique. It's, it's the first, um, social media war. Uh, there's never been a war that's pay, played out kind of in, in the information space. It, everything is happening pretty much real time. Uh, so in reality, we would know really, really quickly that these capabilities have started to show up. We would know either, uh, by the fact that there would be pictures taken, uh, of, uh, uh, train uh, of, of convoys of equipment kind of arriving, of departing, you know, bases in Europe or arriving in Ukraine. We'd see them on the battlefield. We'd see something uh, about their effects. Uh, that's why this notion that, you know, there's a lot going on behind the scenes that we're not seeing just kind of falls, um, uh, feels, it's, it's, a, it's a misplaced idea that there's a, a lot that we're not seeing. There's some things that we're not seeing. But I don't think there's a lot that we're not seeing uh, just because of the nature of this war. Okay, and uh, from from the uh, collated from the the room and from the few days here of people sending in questions, uh, a lot of people are making hay of uh, 9th of May. Um, what does it mean? Is it mean there's going to be a full mobilization? There's going to be a, there's going to be an armistice? There's going to be uh, whatever? Um, do you have any insight on that? What could that mean? Sure. What, what, where are we going? Yep. So uh, I I been thinking about this for a little while i think uh it is an important mark on the wall may 9th is is um has a, a legacy going back to 1945 uh much celebrated in the soviet union and uh really in a lot of ways um rejuvenated under putin to kind of recapture the glory of of, of russia uh so there's going to be some consistency where we see the parade planning already now with regards to kind of the pageantry. Um, but this one's likely to have a policy component too. There is likely to be something, uh, so, some sort of um, announcement. Some of, there are some theories that this, there could be an announcement of general mobilization. I finally, fr frankly find that a little bit hard to believe that a war that's gone as poorly as it has um, with the, the, diametrically opposed claims in uh, Russia that victory is around the corner, that uh, it's going to be that easy to just bite the bullet and say, we're actually not winning. 
uh, we need a, a mobilization in order to defeat Ukraine. You know, these like backwoods, uh, you know, little Russians. Uh, that's going to come with costs. The, the long-term costs are also not negligible. That means a larger swath of the population has to send their fathers, sons, husbands, brothers uh, to war. And um, with many of them coming back uh, as casualties. And uh, that has that that's something that the Russian uh, general staff, the Russian Ministry of Defense, uh, the political class has to be thinking about. I think that there's if this last part of the campaign had gone better, these past two weeks had gone better and Russia had some meaningful uh, gains, you know, seizing Mariupol, uh, pushing out to the boundaries of uh, of uh, Luhansk and Donetsk. Uh, seizing Kherson, Zaporozhye, you know, basically making major gains. I think they're in, in success, I would have probably expected to see maybe some sort of partial mobilization to press to victory. Now, I think that given the fact that the prospects are, are so poor that the pressure from sanctions is only going to increase with a sanction, with a, um, you know, oil and gas embargo of sorts, it's really going to be a, a price control on how much uh, revenue goes back to, to uh, Russia with the fact that the U.S. has signaled it will spend Russia into the ground. Uh, this $33 billion in aid amounts to half of the, uh, Russia's uh, annual defense budget um, in total. Uh, as an alliance, we've probably spent about as much as Russia spends in a year uh, with, with easily more coming. So I think with all these types of headwinds, I would expect that Putin, who I assess to be a rational actor, uh, highly opportunistic, thought that this was going to be easy, uh, that he could, in, you know, when it wasn't, that he could pressure his way out of it, uh, saber rattle his way out of it. He's going to try to, he, he may very well consider um, this discretion being the better part of valor and fighting a, a, another day, uh, declaring victory like he did in Mariupol, uh, attempting to keep some of the gains, especially the land bridge, but I, 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 it's hard for me to imagine. Uh, we'll see in, in about, I guess, four days. It's hard for me to imagine uh, that he's going to press towards a general mobilization. If he does, uh, we are, uh, I think we as NATO, the democratic world, are in for a painful, long war uh, in which there's a, an increasing chance of NATO involvement. All right. So, I mean, the, the inverse of that, people would say, you know, he they, they suspect he hasn't been acting rationally or his, the results of it, of his decisions haven't turned out so well. But um, so um, we're that's the uh, we're going to go to the panel. Uh, I think we Mikey had a question and uh, he's a former wing commander and uh, Colonel Lake. So uh, uh, do you who wanted we'll go with Mikey first and then uh, Colonel Lake. Go ahead. Thanks very much, uh, Yehuda. And, and just before I, uh, I get to, uh, I've got a couple of questions for, for Alex, actually. I just want to say a, uh, a huge thank you to Walter and Yehuda for, uh, for having me up on this uh, very experienced panel of speakers. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a privilege and an honor to be able to sort of relate some of the experience and knowledge through 20 years of, uh, of many, many combat tools. Um, the one specifically that has allowed me to analyze so much within this Twitter space is uh, the prelim operations that did in the campaign planning of the British inload into Helmand province. And part of that role was um, being uh, the J35, which is the operations planner in charge of the uh, SF uh, operations that were going on inside 
before the British troops ever got there. And, and this is one of the big discussions that, that, that goes on. And, and, and Alex, it's a pleasure to meet you. Um, and and I'm, I'm curious because there's a couple of questions from this. There's a lot that goes on um, under the SF component in terms of SNR and SNI, surveillance and reconnaissance, support and influence, non-kinetic operations that are absolutely critical in forming the IPB. And, and this, the, the panel will know what the IPB is, but for those that are listening in, it's the intelligence preparation of the battle space. And this is an absolutely critical role that SF do outside of the kinetic operations. We also, we also know, from my experience, that isn't reported on, that is going on, uh, the role that SF are conducting at the moment. And I think what's incredibly important to, to annotate, and it, it's, it goes to your point, Alex, on, and, and it's what I've always been saying, is that this, this, this counter to Russian invasion of Ukraine is a war that has been conducted like no other war because of the globalization and the digital, the digital component. But so far, under the SF bit, um, that aspect has been pretty much been separated from the media. And I'm very happy with that because that is a critical part of the operations that are going on at the moment. My first question to you, Alex, is given the fact that you're in European affairs on the, on the National Security Council, is there anything in your experience that NATO or the West could have done in the lead up to Putin deciding to invade Ukraine to prevent it from doing so? Because I personally, and I'm a regular analyst on BBC, I was surprised that he actually made the move to commit to the invasion, given all of the political, economic and security headwinds that he would be facing. So the first question, the first question for you, Alex, is, yeah. is, is did the invasion surprise you? And is there anything that the West could have done to have prevented that? Yeah. So... Um... Thanks, Mickey. It's good to meet you, too. Uh, no, it didn't surprise me. Uh, back in this, in um, uh, November of 2021, uh, I was I was still doing, I started, I was doing pr some press, and I started going on the record saying that this war is coming, and, um, you know, it, it, there's little to be done to avoid it. And then in December, I wrote something for the New York Times saying that uh, if it, this war is all but certain to happen, uh, even if we do a full court press to avoid it, but at least we should try to do that full court press to avoid it because the day after shots are fired, uh, the, uh, the uh, um, you know missiles are launched, it becomes increasingly complex uh, and it implicates uh, European security, NATO, uh, U.S. security, uh, and potentially sets us on a condition where if Ukraine lost, um, the democratic world would be uh, under siege. So it, it didn't surprise me. And it's, I guess, partially because uh, I've, I've spent such a huge amount of time focused on Russia and understood, understood that um, the signals, everything from uh, this massive unprecedented force buildup to the rhetoric that uh, Vladimir Putin was using, uh, these missives that he's 5,000 word missives he was writing about, uh, his view of the world, uh, his view of Ukraine, uh, all of that kind of pointed in the direction of uh, of the war. I remember being on NPR and Mary Louise Kelly asked me this question. And she said, you know, where would you, where'd you place it? I said, it's eight out of 10 uh, in, in the beginning of January that was going to happen. But I thought that we could have at least tried to do more and we didn't do anything. We were almost entirely reactive. Uh, and the prescription that I, I, I kind of uh, called for at that moment was graduated response options with regards to sanctions. Russia was already uh, belligerent by positioning its forces, warranting some sanctions, 
signaling that more sanctions would come and indicating that uh, there would be a cost. I thought that we could have done more with regards to posture changes in, in Europe. Again, indicating that uh, this was this was not going to be a, a costless operation and it would uh, sh uh, make more challenging Russia's kind of security uh, uh, environment. And then I said uh, that we should be arming Ukraine kind of to the teeth back then. Uh, and the only thing we were willing to do is re relatively modest quantities in, in those earlier days of uh, javelins and not even stingers, but eventually stingers. And we did, just didn't do any of it. You know, we decided to settle on a policy. And this is something that we that there should be a reckoning uh, on this issue afterwards. But um, we decided that we were going to be reactive. And uh, we did that, I think, initially on the basis of a couple of different things. The first one was uh, some unsurety about the fact that this war was coming, even though uh, I think to, to quite a few analysts, uh, it, it started to become evident, certainly by January. Um, and we didn't want to precipitate the war. But once it was became, became absolutely certain that the war was coming, uh, to not take actions to warn off Russia uh, was just a, a, a major, major uh, foreign policy failure, I think. The other issues were a perception around who would win and who would lose and, and the cost to be borne. If you perceive that Russia would roll over Ukraine within a couple of days, if you're, uh, you have this defeatist attitude uh, about victory, uh, Russian victory, why would you risk anything? Why would you, uh, you know, make a much more complex in, uh, security environment, let your weapons fall into the Russian hands, whatever the case might be, if, the, uh, if there was going to be a, a quick defeat of the, Russia, of the Ukrainian forces? And these are the kinds of decisions that drove uh, our policymakers to be uh, reactive. And the only reason that we find ourselves in the world where we are today is because, again, the, the heroism of the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian armed forces changing that discussion, um, initially uh, halting Russian attacks, but now uh, presenting the, the distinct possibility of defeat. And uh, we've been led by, and this is not a bad thing, but we've been led by Ukraine, and we should embrace that and uh, recognize that um, you know, Ukraine has set the conditions for all of the things that have unfolded since uh, February 24th. Thank you. Uh, and I, and I, oh. Sorry, a very, very quick follow-up. Is, is, yep. is there a red line, Alex, that, mm. uh, that the, the GRU, the military intelligence component of the Kremlin and the FSB, is there a red line that Putin can cross that would alienate the FSB and the GRU, which are absolutely critical to what Putin's agenda is? Yeah, I think there is a lot of this uh, starting to percolate up. I think, in fact, um, you know, whether it's rational or rationalization, the Russian military believes that its hands have been tied. They certainly believe that they, they were given false premise by the FSB, false uh, guidance or uh, uh, terribly bad assumptions by uh, President Putin in shaping the, the battle plan about uh, what to expect with regards to Ukrainian resistance, um, you know, that would be the, the FSB kind of setting the, some of those conditions and shaping uh, Putin's own vision on this. And I think um, that is certainly part of the story as to why the plan unfolded the way it did. And the Russian armed forces are taking the heat. They're taking the, the you know, this was an honorable institution, very, very well regarded, and its uh, reputation is in the toilet. Or if it isn't yet, yeah, it will be. Uh, on the other hand, they have performed quite badly. Uh, 
And this is a good rationalization that the reason that they're, you know, that they're having such a hard time is because uh, political actors, uh, FSB, and uh, it doesn't take a CRU to uh, to fight with the FSB. That's like a historic issue, uh, the infighting between the FSB right, and right. the KGB and the GRU. Uh, so I think that it's there. It's it's starting to percolate up to a certain extent. Uh, there have been some folks that watch the the Intel space and, and have started to write about it. I don't think it's anything super meaningful just yet, just because Putin has a very, very tight grasp on the elements of uh, repression. Uh, but there's still something to be said. You know, it's a, it's an area to watch. All right. Thank you. Uh, Colonel Lake. Uh, Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Um, my question, and, and I asked a similar question to General Ryan, but I'm always really interested in um, what sort of analysis is going on in terms of, you know, potential um, war termination options here. Um, and so I'm wondering, like, it, do you have a sense that there is some some good analysis or ideas of potential viable outcomes that, that would be acceptable to the Ukrainians, that would be acceptable to NATO? Um, and if some of this, you know, this increase in support, this $33 billion uh, that's been committed, is that going to be, you know, used in a way um, to directly support the path to those desired outcomes. Um, and, and one small follow-on question to what Mickey uh, was asking there, um, talking about what we could have done prior. Do you think it would have made any difference if the training missions that were from NATO countries uh, that were on the ground up until early February-ish, um, would it have changed anything if they had stayed? Thank yeah. you. Thanks, uh so I'll start with that one first. I think um, we made a, a, a terrible, I mean, and I, I'm, I support this administration and these are unprecedented uh, times with very, very uh, challenging decisions to make. Uh, but uh, we made a pretty, pretty bad blunder in December when uh, our president declared no boots on the ground. And in reality, you know, there's a, a, a I think there's a utility in making that kind of claim uh, to to indicate to Russia that NATO has no interest, the U.S. has no interest in fighting Russia. And that's something that could have been made clear, you know, in the days uh, before the war. Uh, but I think it would have been useful to warn off Russia from conducting uh, this war if, in fact, we were doing, let's say, exercises with the Ukrainians. Um, yeah, that, we that's kind of that, sense. That's right. Um, we like could have in... strategic, uh, it would be... Uh, kind of this idea of um, strategic ambiguity about what the NATO response would be. I think that would be an important component to, we, we reintroduced that back into the mix on WMD. It's now kind of stated policy, but by taking NATO troops out of play, I think it really did make uh, the decision for uh, Putin to, to advance, uh, to uh, conduct this war uh, a little bit easier. Yeah, um, like I, re I recall, uh, and I know the situation was very different, but during the buildup in the spring last year, um, when it uh, when we got the sort of index declaration from Russia around the 21st of April last year, um, General Hamtuck spoke to us at the Multinational Joint Commission and said, you know, you can't underestimate um, the deterrence role that it played simply having these NATO soldiers on the ground and continuing their operations. So I always have that in the back of my mind, looking at this 
like wondering yep. if it would have changed something and did we did we seed the ground did we and i think you're right the the key point is that we made the decision space easier we did i remember uh talking to the white house uh in the weeks before this war and uh, you know kind of just brainstorming some ideas and one of the things i said you know the russians were going to try to pulverize the ukrainian air force why don't and this is at the same time that the uh, russians were getting ready to conduct a uh, exercise with the belarus wouldn't it have been a perfect excuse for nato to announce a joint exercise ukraine whether it's in the in the uh, land domain or in the air domain and have all those air platforms kind of uh, withdraw to nato territory so they wouldn't be destroyed on the ground in the first several hours and uh, these 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 things were not even part of the. Um, they were not um, something that we seriously considered because we, back then we thought they were impossible. Now they're the easy things. To, you know, everything that we thought was impossible uh, on day one of the war is now easy. Providing heavy weapons, providing artillery, you know, considering um, unmanned combat aerial vehicles. But back then we we just we had this very very strange state of mind about um, some way of returning to. Uh, normalcy with Russia, hopes of a kind of averting a Cold War, uh, deeply, deeply misplaced about where that relationship was in reality. But to your, to your other uh, questions, I'll, I'll just uh, briefly mention, I, I think I would hope to see um, some of that $33 billion go towards outcomes. I'm not certain yet. I, uh, I have not seen the clear indications that the U.S. is prepared to provide the high-tech equipment that Ukraine, that would really equalize the battlefield with Russia and its advanced capabilities. Um, certainly, the way these things work, uh, there's an appropriation, and then the executive branch kind of makes a determination on what to spend the dollars on. So there's a you know reasonable chance that we might see some of these things announced and flow in. Um, but I'm not sure. It's just a deep, deep reluctance there. With regards to war termination, uh, that's an interesting one. I mean, uh, certainly I get this question a lot, but it's usually from like, off ramps and face saving measures for Ukraine uh, for for Russia, and it's to me that's um, that's a kind of a dangerous road to go down because Russia would bank whatever you're offering in terms of off ramps and face saving measures, and uh, and and certainly see, try to seize uh, something bigger and bolder. And too often uh, we we found with Russia is that they'll just reject our our um, overtures out of hand. I think it's up to Putin to determine whether uh, whether to pursue. Uh, off ramps and face saving measures, and thus to then be ready to evaluate the um, utility, the logic, the soundness of uh, accepting any of those offers. But uh, I, I, we're past the time of us having to offer something to him. We shouldn't be thinking in that manner. Um, he's the one that should be coming, and he is. He's. We might see that on the ninth, frankly. Um, but in terms of what's what's acceptable for for NATO and Ukraine, I think we're prepared now to start to follow uh, Ukraine's lead in a bigger way. Uh, I think we still have this sense of parochialism, and we're likely to uh, tell them, you know, um, or instruct them on uh, how far they can go. Uh, maybe behind the scenes, even kind of um, warn that we're prepared to meet or support if if we think that their um, ambitions are too large. But I think what's likely to play out is uh, Ukraine is going to, under almost all circumstances at this point, is going to push to um, to establish a status quo ante to uh, February 24th. I think there's a, even a reasonable possibility that uh, Ukraine may pursue 
reestablishing territorial integrity over Ukraine, including the Donbass, with the exception of um, with uh, the exception of Crimea, which is in a unique status because it's a next uh, uh, territory. It's Russian territory. And unless Russia does a terrible blunder, which is one of the other options that they could do is on May 9th, they could declare these these regions, um, you know, Russian territory, which would undermine um, the, the uniqueness of Crimea status. Uh, I think the discussion around Crimea is likely to be tabled. And I think the, the Ukrainian leadership is prepared to do that, except a, a kind of a different kind of status and a, a different kind of conversation over Crimea. But I think it's going to push for, for control of its territory. Thank you so much. All right. We've got a question from, uh, we're going to go to Drew has a question, then CJ. Uh, sorry, we're going to have to, we're putting some people down just because we're having a problem getting uh, Colonel Spencer back on. So Peter, we're going to have to get back to you. Uh, we, we're just having a little technical glitch. Go ahead, Drew. Yeah. So uh, first of all, thanks for being here, um, Colonel Vindman. Really appreciate it. Um you know, I think so many people in the space kind of expect this war to <laughs> have some type of cl- conclusion within like six months, a year. But frankly, I, I personally expect it to go on for much longer. Um, and so if the war continues to to drag on in Ukraine and it's still happening in, you know, January 2025 and Trump's elected, how do you think that will affect our posture and, you know, what would ship there and how would that affect the outcome for Ukraine? Good God, uh, that that would be an enormous strategy, tragedy for the United States and the whole world. But, um, you know, I don't know if it has to go on that long, frankly. I think there's a this, you know, such a drastic swing from uh, this is this war is going to be over in days to the fact that it's going to be going to be uh, to play out over years. And um I'm not sure if it needs to to, uh, to go that way because if you take a look at Russia's combat capabilities, in a lot of ways, it's 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 on the cusp of being a broken force, and uh, with just a little push and nudge with regards to Ukraine being able to um, settle the score with uh, Russian air power and uh, missile batteries, uh, Ukraine can get there and basically you know disable in a lot of ways uh, uh, the Russian armed forces. If we if we stumble, if Russia doesn't feel like it's been sufficiently punished and on May 9th either pursues a, a partial mobilization or a general mobilization, uh, then we are in for a long war. Uh, it's going to take Russia months to reconstitute its forces. It's going to take uh, quite some time for um, Russia is going to try to hold its positions. It's going to take it some time to build uh, offensive capability. And then it has to contend with uh, safe havens for the Ukrainian armed forces, safe havens for uh, you know equipment pouring in, like the, the notion of proxy warfare. And I think it gets extremely dangerous well before 2025, uh, probably within the next six months or a year, as Russia's uh, uh, objectives are stymied, where it lashes out and potentially lashes out at NATO, and we find ourselves you know within within a year in a war because uh, Russia looks for different ways, different vulnerabilities to warn off NATO. That's, that's more likely to me than, um, you know, maybe it's a wishful thinking than a uh, Trump leading this war effort scenario. Cause uh, I mm-hmm. could see getting into the 2024 election cycle um, 
I don't know. I could see Trump uh, because of the spirit of the uh, American people is uh, behind the support for uh, for Ukraine. You know, rhetorically saying that he's he's supporting Ukraine. That he's a strong leader, but in reality, I I, uh, I think w- once he becomes president, he'll look for ways to uh, you know reconcile with Vladimir Putin, who he, who he admires deeply. All right, uh, Alex, we've got John back in. He's able to get in. Uh, so, John, go ahead. Hey, Alex, thanks for joining us, brother. Uh, it's really good to hear from you. I'm learning a lot. So my question was, one, I don't I don't agree that this will go on for years. I just don't see that scenario playing out. My question is, and I know you have strong beliefs on, what else could be given to Ukraine within the understandable political, you know, tripwire, red lines um, on both sides? What else could we, as in the West, be given Ukraine that we're not? Yeah. So I think the first thing to recognize is that this is a sophisticated force, uh, well-led uh, militarily and well-led by the, a political class. So uh, if we want to be partners, if we want to be strategic partners, that was the kind of the term of art with, uh, with regards to our relationship with Ukraine, uh, then um, that requires uh, an element of, of, of trust. Uh, if, we, if we do have that kind of trust, then we could probably give them just about anything with the understanding that they don't use uh, their, their those capabilities to target kind of strategic Russian assets, go after the Kremlin. But even if we don't have that trust, there's a lot we could be doing. If we were to offer HIMARS, uh, we don't have to op- uh, offer the same kinds of capabilities that allow them to strike strategic targets. We could instead offer them the kind of that attackers. Uh, capability, the 300 uh, kilometer range, or, uh, if, if I recall correctly, we could offer them uh, gray eagles if we're not prepared to offer them reapers. Gray eagles have a 300 nautical mile, mile range, a payload of four uh, um, Hellfire missiles. We could uh, offer them uh, those t- that, that class of equipment. Um, we could offer them some platforms that could carry small diameter bomb- bombs uh, that have a nice uh, kind of glide. Uh, um, capability to hit targets pretty deep. Um, we could offer some some more capabilities with regards to coastal defense cruise missiles, medium and long range air defense. Those are defensive capabilities, and then um, you know uh, figure out how to acquire for them uh, medium and long range kind of anti armor capabilities like loiter muni- munitions and things of that nature. Those are all things that that we have not yet done. We have provided some pretty good capabilities now with artillery and armor coming through from various kind of donors. Uh, but all those things I laid out are, are not yet uh, in play. Is there a follow-up there, John? No, I, I, I 100% agree. This is about ranges and even the all the fancy talk of like uh, the switchblades and all that. People have to understand the, the range of these systems. And we need to be able to push the Ukrainian military's range and lethality farther out. Yep. I would say if we give them something within the 300 uh, uh, kilometer range category, uh, they could go after uh, some, let's say, a strategically a strategic uh, targets in terms of, uh, you know, strategic morale targets. Like they go after the Kerch Bridge with that kind of range. They could go after our airfields uh, in in um, Crimea or in uh, you know done in the uh, Rostov, uh, like the, right across the border in uh, Russia. They go after those types of things, but uh, that wouldn't give them the capability to go after kind of strategic targets or uh, target uh, all the way out to um, to Moscow. So I think those are 
even if we we didn't have uh, a trust in our strategic partner, uh, we, we could offer a lot, lots of different capabilities that could extend their range and go after these tar- these uh, systems that allow Russia to uh, sustain war. All right. Um, so we've got CJ. He's uh, one of our resident arty SMEs, uh, all sorts of clever, and I uh, won't get into his background, but I think you can imagine there, uh, Colonel Vindman. So CJ, you had a good question. Hey, Colonel Vindman. Good to talk to you. I'm Captain Drew. I'm a field artillery officer, U.S. Army, experienced with the 173rd and uh, 75th Ranger Regiment. My question is sort of very Army-focused because you've had a great distinguished career in, in the Army. And really, I'm, you've mentioned a couple times about how the Russian military has shown so many deficiencies and so many issues. I guess, what do you think Army officers should be taking away from all that? I spent my first couple of years in Germany training to fight the Russians, and it turned out uh, we were almost overtraining maybe. But I guess, what military capabilities did you see while you are in Moscow or, or stationed in Europe that really makes you think that they, they're still a force to be reckoned with in some way? So I think, you know, it's interesting. I, I uh, was responsible. Well, the reason I went to the Pentagon after Moscow is because I had kind of firsthand experience watching, uh, uh, you know, part of this war unfold in 2014-15, uh, observing and reporting on Russian activities um, from the Russian side of the border back then. Uh, and the things that, that um, I was picking up on that uh, worried me was the fact that the Russians were really effective at using um, UAVs to uh, employ fires. We're reluctant. We want like an observer, you know, on, uh, for some reason, we, we uh, for a long time insisted on an observer on the ground to make sure that there was no civilians, no collateral damage. The Russians were, were, were un- unencumbered by those types of considerations. Uh, I was concerned about electronic warfare capabilities, degrading um, our ability to communicate. Uh, those things seemed pretty apparent. Uh, EW, they have a sophisticated suite of uh, capabilities. Um, I I understood that the Russian uh, kind of national level exercises were well rehearsed. So when you see like a combination of air power, artillery and maneuver, uh, on those kind of uh, set piece uh, stages, there was, that was not the whole story. But I also saw the Russians conduct some uh, kind of live fire exercises. I saw students get drilled real hard in the academies on um, artillery and things of that nature. Uh, so I thought that these things were uh, these were were important capabilities that they could bring to bear against the U.S. And there's a uh, the, the trick here is not to assume that the Russian army is 10 feet tall, but also not to uh, kind of accept him uh, to, to be a dwarf and, 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 and relevant. We need to have a better appraisal. And to a certain extent, the way we do that is in this case, we probably learn a lot from this, this campaign, how the uh, Ukrainians fought. Uh, we probably need to have more folks on the ground. Uh, that's you know, to me, I, I'm an infantryman. Uh, uh, I, was, I was an infantryman for 10 years before I became a, a foreign area officer. And that kind of on the ground feel is, is is something hard to explain. I would like to see, you know, more of our, our folks kind of rotate through, um, especially as this war winds down the Yavari training areas, you know, basically partnering with the, uh, the Ukrainians and, and, and uh, you know, having those kinds of exchanges. That's the way we could learn a lot about uh, you know, the Russians, uh, how the, the Ukrainians fought them. And then at the same time, understand um, that the way this war unfolded, at least initially, um, 
so poorly was based on just false assumptions. We in the military, as you know, CJ, talk about valid and necessary assumptions. Uh, these the assumptions that the Russian uh, military uh, drew partially from the political class was on the basis that the Ukrainians would surrender. They wouldn't resist. Um, and uh, that probably drew a, a, drove a lot of the way um, that the Russian military kind of arrayed itself, uh, looked to do a, a kind of lightning strike around cities, didn't worry about logistics, didn't worry about securing, um, uh, you know, their, their, the territory between their uh, forward line of troops and, uh, you know, their rear areas and things of that nature. So uh, I don't know. Um, we'll have to figure out how much of this is just kind of systemic, poor, the lack of uh, NCO leadership, uh, lack of kind of mission command type of uh, thinking, you know, the initiative that the uh, Ukrainians um, uh, have an abundance, the Russians are lack. Uh, we'll have to kind of study some of those things. But there are pl still plenty of people that will tell you that the Russians have a lot of capability. Thank you for that. I just want to take uh, the moment to thank you uh, and just remind the room of Maria Aid and appreciate Colonel Vindman's support. Uh, as as you can tell, uh, many of the uh, stakeholders at Maria Aid were either intimately involved in training Ukrainian forces and, and having that experience. Um, if you could, uh, if you, if you're in a position to assist us, we really do appreciate it. We take uh, we've taken uh, help from people in specific fields, um, whether people are volunteering their time. Um, every cent that is sent to us is, uh, is, uh, donated to purchase equipment, um, non-lethal aid, humanitarian aid, drones, NVGs, and the like. And, uh, and thank you for standing behind that, uh, Colonel Vindman. Of course. So I just wanted to, I wanted to, yeah, I, I, we really appreciate it. And, and, you know, as you can see, we have a, a wide variety of experts who, who've come to, um, to help in the information, uh, war. I mean, this, as many of the panelists have said already, this is the first war that's it's live and and it's relevant to everyone. Uh, I mean, we can pontificate as to why other wars haven't been as important or as spotlighted, and that's that says something about our cultures and societies, and that's a conversation for another day. But with regards to the information um, war, uh, we have Ina, one of our panelists, Colonel Vindman. She's a, a reporter for uh, Norway's largest um, media outlet, and she has a question for you about this information. Go ahead, Ina. Yeah, thank you so much for being with us, Colonel Vindman. Um, yeah, regarding the Russian propaganda and, you know, the disinformation that is being used as a weapon in this war and, quite frankly, in our society, um, what do you think we can do to counter the matter of false information and propaganda? Sure. Well, uh, first, let me uh, reinforce this uh, this good work that uh, Maria Aid's doing. And, uh, you know, uh, I think we should all kind of indicate uh, understand that civil society has been absolutely critical with regards to um, enabling Russia's success, uh, uh, you know, at times arming the Russian armed forces, but certainly with regards to the ter territorial defense forces. And Joe, I might be able to take one more question because I have to hop. But um, with regards to the information environment, it's, it's something that uh, bothered me for a long, long time that Russia, because it didn't have to, uh, to uh, adhere to kind of, um, you know, any, any values and could, uh, lie at will had the uh, the edge uh, in terms of uh, uh, attempting to uh, use the fire hose of falsehoods uh, as it's been written about um, and just try a bunch of different messages see which one's going to be going to be most effective and then uh, you know exploiting success 
and that uh, governments uh, in the West couldn't do the same thing, uh, and it wasn't really all that effective to to uh, kind of um, attempt to deny or uh, explain. Um, but I also recognize in that same breath that Russia was generally accepted as the bad guy and the West was accepted as the good guy. So it, with government to government kind of uh, interactions, it seemed like the it lopsided in favor of Russia. But in terms of like who was perceived to be a good actor, who's perceived to be a bad actor, I think that uh, there was always the, 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 the advantages were towards the West. Now uh, we have, a, I think, a very, very different environment. Uh, Russia has been shown to be, uh, um, you know, uh, barbarous, um, inhumane, and I think that there is very little that Russia can do in the in the in the near future to kind of undo the damage uh, uh, and of, of this war. Um, I think there are other things there. We still have to learn the lesson of how to compete with, let's say, China and other regimes that haven't proven themselves to be kind of, you know, uh, identified and synonymous with evil. Uh, and uh, we still have those kind of issues between governments that are uh, apt to lie and governments that are, you know, that are, are going to do the best to, to adhere to uh, Western values. But we, it's not something, frankly, that we need to be super concerned about with Russia. And in a lot of ways, I think um, Ukraine has sh shown, um, directed us in, in, a, uh, uh, in the right area, which is that Russia's falsehoods could be overwhelmed by by just general information sharing so when russia tries to kind of uh, propagate uh, 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 some some sort of falsehood there is in fact you know a uh, you turn up the volume on the other side uh, as as president Zelensky has done so effectively in, in ukraine and really drowned out that that nonsense and having you know first-hand accounts on the ground accounts video footage whatever the case might be is is, is proven to be very very effective on pushing or putting Russia on its heels with regards to the information war. Thanks so much, uh, Alex. Uh, got John has the last question for you. Thank you. First of all, thank you so much for your time and, uh, and for your commitment to Marie aid. We really appreciate it. And, um, hopefully we'll see you back soon. Here you go, John. Thanks. Alex, hopefully a quick question. What's your bold and audacious prediction for the next couple of weeks and months in the, U the war? Yep. So I think, uh, this one's actually pretty easy. Uh, Ukraine's going to win. Russia's going to lose. Um, so 